I just have one verse that I want to read today in a message that I have titled, None Dare Call It Evil. It's Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, where the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth, it means a perverse mouth, do I hate. That's the Lord speaking. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the perverse mouth do I hate. And we can start by just pointing out the obvious is that God says here, and we see it in other places in the Bible, that there are things that he hates. So not all hatred, though a great majority from us human beings of our hatred is not only tainted and prejudiced, but not entirely accurate. But when God hates something, it's 100% pure. It's a pure hatred. And so there are other things the Lord says, but let's just look at this one here. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the perverse mouth. God says, I hate them. Now, for me, it doesn't seem too difficult to understand what evil is, but apparently for some, including preachers, which is pretty amazing, they seem to have a difficult time understanding evil. But if the preacher doesn't, they shouldn't. It seems that the population at large is having a terrible time. And I'll give you some reasons why this has developed in this way of just recognizing that there's evil in the world. That some things have no other explanation except that it's just evil. And I took these definitions from the secular dictionary rather than Strong's or some Christian dictionary um, of evil so that you would see how the Webster's dictionary in particular comes up with the conclusion of what evil is. The first definition is something that is morally reprehensible. This is Webster, sinful and wicked. Well, maybe we here can understand that. And morally, what's morally, you know, then you take it from there when you're in the world of definition of morals and morality. But the word sinful is pretty specific. Primarily, if not exclusively, only the Bible uses that word. Something that is morally reprehensible. Sinful and wicked. Further, under that definition, Webster says that this moral and reprehensible and sinful wicked behavior arises from an actual or an imputed bad character or conduct. This is the second thing that we don't hear too much of anymore in many circles here in the general population, that someone is just a poor character or a sinful character. If you hear as much as I hear from so many, many people, if they don't say it directly, and some don't, especially ones with Bibles, they won't say it directly, but they allude to the fact that it's not my fault. And it can be something very clear and obvious that you made a choice to do this, but it's not my fault. This is something that we have to really consider concerning ourselves. I mean, start with yourself. In the end of any day, we've all made choices. In any case, we must recognize that evil exists. And aside from connecting it to sin, what the Bible calls sin, sometimes there is no good explanation of why these horrible things happen that are happening in the world and have happened throughout history other than this word evil. And in our current culture, there seems to be a hesitation, if not some people just literally choking on the word, that what is happening in the world is evil. 
Because when we say evil, it seems kind of nebulous, that it has no shape or form. I mean, what is evil? But then we hear, and those of you watching who have Bibles, preachers and teachers and missionaries, you know the Bible describes very clearly what evil is, but we'll get to that. So just the one definition for Webster's, there's a few more. Evil is something that is morally reprehensible. And we here, and in any fellowship which is part of the true body of Christ, evil is pretty clear what it is. But we'll get to that, as I said. I want to bring to you, once again, something I gave to you just a couple of weeks ago in the message I titled, Victory Over Yourself. If you want to score a victory in life, that's the one that God is looking for first. You get a victory over yourself. And I quoted to you, and I'm going to read through it again because it's very pertinent and germane to this message, none dare call it evil, from the book Whatever Became of Sin by Dr. Carl Manager. Remember, if you don't know, you're not familiar with who he was, he's the founder, one of the founders of the Manager Clinic psychiatric facility in Topeka, Kansas, very well-known psychiatrist. And he wrote this book years ago, 1973. I was just a senior in high school. He postulated in his book that the day would come when sin would no longer be an element of the human vernacular or our speech, sin. He put forth that this word was once part of our culture. It was a strong word. It was an important word. You can read that in his introduction to the book. And now in 1973, it had virtually at least begun and in a large part just disappeared. Manager was a psychiatrist. And he put forth the idea that whatever became of the word, what happened to the word? Doesn't anybody sin anymore? That was one of the things he wrote in his book. Doesn't anybody sin? This is a psychiatrist. Then he predicted that the term sin would be replaced. This is 1973. Manager predicted the term sin would be replaced with words like illness and disorder, dysfunction, syndrome. You know, we talk about like a dysfunctional family. Well, it applies. Yeah, there's not the right function in the family that say but it's a result of what the Bible calls sin. Sin. He predicted the term would be replaced with words like illness, disorder, dysfunction, syndrome, and that the human condition, he wrote, would be excused as a product of biochemistry, environment, experience, and trauma. He projected that even crime would go unpunished as criminal activity would be justified. Think of that word, justified and minimized as a result of some medical abnormality for which one could not be held responsible. Now, before I forget, or if I neglect it, I want to mention now this point on that word responsibility. If those who say just about everything now is a disorder, I could point you to more and more quotes, but I'd be quoting more from books than I am from the Bible. But I can point you in the direction of many who are in the field of psychiatry who disagree with not only what is mental illness, I'll get to that in just a second, but is addiction really a disease? If so, then we look at the book of the Revelation, which we had read during the song service, and we see God judging all people. And now think of it this way. If everybody has a disorder and a disease of the mind, of the spirit, if no one is responsible for their behavior, and you could relegate it to some type of, you know, syndrome, then man would be more righteous than God. Because we'd be able to stand before God and say, God, you're unrighteous. Just think of the thought. To stand before God and say, you are not righteous, because I could not help myself. 
Now, obviously, there's mitigating circumstances in our lives that lead us to things and, you know, things that we shouldn't do. And then there's heinous crimes as we're witnessing currently throughout the nation. But at the end of the day, well, really, at the end of the book, the living and the dead, every single one who's ever lived, ever will live, is risen and judged by what they have done and is held accountable for their actions. Drug addicts are not going to be able to say, well, it was the drugs. Alcoholics are not going to be able to say, well, it was the alcohol. Those with a little more testosterone are not going to be able to say, well, it was just the testosterone, so I became a womanizer. It's called adultery. And so on. See, man would then be more righteous than God, if indeed God actually wrote the Bible. Some question that. I don't. Amen. I don't. Manager's prognostication, this introduction to his book says, the day was approaching when practically everyone would be considered sick and their conduct pardonable. That's 1973. No longer would there be any liability for human error, choice, and willful conduct. Everyone would be innocent, vindicated through biology, psychiatry, and humanistic reasoning. I brought you that a couple of weeks ago. I just wanted to remind you that the situation that we're in has been happening for a long, long time. Let me also remind you that the group of people who dropped the word sin out of their vernacular was the church. It wasn't out there. They just followed suit. It was the church. But that's another part of our history going back to minimally the 19th century when questions about the Bible were not only proposed, but the Bible was pretty much shredded by theologians and then preachers as well. And then all of a sudden, psychology and a bit of psychiatry began to enter the pulpits, of which we have today, that nothing that you've done this week is your fault. And it's all because you're sick with something. But before God, he says, no. Mm -mm. Yeah, there's mitigating circumstances to genetics, to your family, to your environment. But in the end, at the end of the book, at the end of the day, everything's a choice. You say, my life is hard. I don't know too many people whose lives aren't hard. I won't go through this whole story, but I just talked to a young man three days ago. Did met him for the first time. His parents are immigrants from Bangladesh. He's got nine brothers, six sisters. Comes from Bangladesh, went to Harlem, Manhattan. Now he lives up here. He's buying properties and houses. Very respectful, very polite kid. Had a good head on his shoulders. We talked a little about, uh, I talked a little bit about the Bible. And he did not disagree with me on the things that I said. And, you know, listen, you come from Bangladesh. And you're up against it. And we have people all over the world, uh, well, at least all over America, saying, hey, I can't make it because, you know, somebody's against me. Here's other, he's buying properties not only here, but he's buying them in Sarasota, Florida. He's only 29 years old. And I said to him, well, America is the land of opportunity. But you see, there are some who go around blaming everybody. And God says, no, not so. We all make choices. Daniel Webster, the Secretary of State under several presidents, wrote these words. He said, good intentions will always be pleaded by every assumption of authority. It is hardly too strong to say that the Constitution was made to guard the people against the dangers of good intentions. When we judge our representatives in Congress or in the Senate or president, whatever, um, at least for me, I won't always say that there's not good intentions. But here Daniel Webster, long, long ago, was saying that the Constitution was made to guard the people against the dangers of good intentions. We may intend to do well by saying, well, you know, he's got problems, she's got problems. But we're not equal to God, and we're not better than God. 
And God says, yes, but you're still held responsible for your behavior. None dare call it evil. That's what I'm trying to get through you today. Now, on the subject of mental illness, and in reference to more mass killings, we're seeing way too much of this. There's two things that always comes up during or after a tragedy like we're seeing, these horrible tragedies. We go back to the subject of gun control and there's all these debates. People demanding, this is some of the things I was reading on social media, people demanding that something will be done and okay, it's reasonable to think that way. But the one that I was looking for more is the straight path from gun violence to mental illness. And people saying, we've got to address mental illness. Now, this is very challenging because who's going to determine who's mentally ill? And what are we going to do? Well, Thomas Saz was the professor of psychiatry for many, many years, up right here, not too far from us, in Upstate Medical University. He was, uh, then at one time, he was the professor emeritus until his death. And he wrote a book in 1960 called The Myth of Mental Illness. I want you to remind yourself, when you're listening to what's being written here, that this is being written by a psychiatrist. As I read from Manager, let me read from Thomas Zaz, keeping in mind that this is not a low-profile guy who doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a psychiatrist. He wrote these words, the claim that mental illnesses are diagnosable disorders of the brain is not based on scientific research. It is a lie an error or a naive revival of the somatic premise of the long discredited humoral theory of disease. My claim that mental illnesses are fictitious illnesses is also not based on scientific research. It rests on the materialistic scientific definition of illness as a pathological alteration of cells, tissues, and organs. If we accept this scientific definition of disease, then it follows that mental illness is a metaphor and that asserting that view is asserting an analytical truth not subjected to empirical falsification. Now, this is an amendment to his original work when he wrote these words uh, somewhere in the 2000s. My great unforgivable sin in the myth of mental illness was calling public attention to the linguistic pretensions of psychiatry. Remember, this is a man who is not only a psychiatrist, he is the professor, he's the head of the department right here a couple hours from us north and west at Syracuse University, Upstate Medical University. Let me read it again. My great unforgivable sin in the myth of mental illness was calling public attention to the linguistic pretensions of psychiatry and its preemptive rhetoric. Who can be, he wrote, against, quote, helping suffering patients or treating treatable diseases? Who can be for ignoring sick people or worse, refusing to give patients life-saving treatment? Now listen, and the answer is rhetorical. Nobody's going to be against helping someone who's sick. No one in their right mind. He wrote these words, rejecting that jargon, I insisted that mental hospitals, listen, this is a psychiatrist, I insisted that mental hospitals are like prisons, not hospitals. That involuntary mental hospitalization is a type of imprisonment, not medical care. And that coercive psychiatrists function as judges and jailers, not healers. Now, I'm well acquainted with this subject, as some of you know. And you'd have to go through the experience yourself to know that this statement is true. I have a book in my library, and you would be good to read it too, just for some history. You go here to Utica, known uh, colloquially as the Utica Crib, one of the first great mental institutions of our country, and read of the treatment, this 1800s, of so-called mentally ill. Saz argued that it's not a real disease the way we think of heart disease and cancer with tissues and organs and cells are alterated. And of course, that's an argument that did make him very popular in his field. 
no more than Abraham Lowe, also a secular psychiatrist, these are all secular psychiatrists, by the way, um, argued against the Freudian principles, and later in his career as a psychiatrist, a well-known psychiatrist, he found ways to cure patients without using the techniques that he had been taught for years and just, just missed them all, but that's another story. We have a malaise of many things. What has ever become of evil? What is mental illness? And then we have this, a book written in 1971 called, none dare call it conspiracy. It was about socialism in America. That's 1971, I was in the 10th grade, just beginning high school. So these things go back, it's been developing. And Gary Allen wrote these words, he paints a picture here for us, which is something I hope you understand. He talks about, and this just happened to me personally a few days ago, really. You know how the internet's always tracking, they know what we're looking up, and so all of a sudden, it's no coincidence that you're getting recommendations from all these things that you've actually researched yourself or products that you've bought. And uh, somehow, one found me that I found interesting, I gotta admit it, it was a picture. And in the picture, it said this can show, not your IQ as much as some type of intelligence. The question was, here's this picture, which is supposed to be an optical illusion, what do you see in this picture? Do you see the married couple or the couple holding hands or the baby? And when I looked at that picture, I mean, the only thing I saw in the picture was the couple. I even went around and around and around looking for the baby that's supposed to be in the picture. I couldn't find it. Spent more time looking for the one I couldn't find than the one I did. And it ended up, they were saying, well, if you could see the couple and only the couple, then you know, you're heavy on the right brain and maybe a bit overdeveloped there. But you understand, you've done these things. The highlight books when we were kids, you know, and they're still around, I think. Can you find the hidden elephant and find the raccoon? And Well, Gary Allen uses that illustration, and he pointed out that the media is actually bringing to us a picture that you can't really see until you look hard for it. Once you start to really look for it, and I'm talking for us, at least in biblical terms, you see it. One of the reasons that I don't watch the news and I read it is because that gives me ability to control how quickly I read it, how slowly I read it, how much I'm gonna read of it. And I think for all of us here, however you get the news, read it, watch it both, we see a picture. It's like the media is saying to us, see if you can find the hidden elephant. See if you can find the hidden raccoon or the couple holding hands or whatever. And without the Bible, I don't know that people can discern how we're being played. And then with the light of the Bible, we begin to see things. And I want also to remind you, don't see too much. His book is called None Dare Call It Conspiracy. He wrote these words here in that book, which is on the rise of socialism in America, 1971. Millions of Americans, he wrote, are concerned and frustrated over mishappenings in our nation. They feel that something is wrong, drastically wrong. But because of the picture painters, they can't quite put their fingers on it. In my little story there, I got one, then I got another because I followed up, and so now I'm getting these on a regular basis, and I'm having a hard time finding the elephant. I don't see it, even when I'm looking for it, looking for it upside down. I don't see it, I, I can't find it. That's why we need the Word of God. We need God in our nation, again. You remember, and you know because you're well-informed people, now, there was a time in our country that Bible reading and prayer in public schools was a regular thing. And you should also know, in case you don't, the public school system was started by the Puritans. Amen. Just like Harvard and Yale were started by the Puritans. We can't recognize it the way it started now, but that's how it was. 
And part of the education of all of the founders and many others was reading the Bible. And then as time goes on, we see less and less of it until we come into 1962 and then 1963. And one of the primary front runners to get prayer and Bible reading out of the schools was Madeline Murray O'Hare. She used a case where her young son, William, and here's the irony of life as well, in Baltimore, where she used her son to bring a case, this would be the second case, 1963, that it was unconstitutional. She argued it right up to the Supreme Court. Then our justices registered that, yes, indeed, it is unconstitutional to have the Ten Commandments posted on the wall or to have a Bible reading, have a prayer recited over the loudspeakers and prayer was gone and the reading of the Bible was gone and now in our courts and even our cemeteries and other places, crosses are disappearing, Ten Commandments are disappearing and one of them says, thou shalt not kill. It's unconstitutional for Americans to have to read those type of things. She was successful, but here's the irony. William Murray in 2012 wrote a book my life without God and what it was like being raised by Madeline Mary O'Hare. It's an interesting read if you want to get it, My Life Without God. But he wrote these words. I noted that by precluding all religions advocating faith in God from public schools, the federal government was in fact establishing a materialistic, atheistic religion by default. Amen. You know, life is not a vacuum. You take away one thing, something has to fill the gap. And in this case, even though our national motto is in God we trust, it is now merely a catchphrase, it's just a trim slogan, because it's really not the case. Mary's opinion is that when we took prayer and all this out of school, by default, America created an atheistic, materialistic government. So he says this, utopian waves have come and gone in the world over thousands of years. Virtually every wave of utopianism has cost life and treasure. Sometimes the wave was just one emperor who was sure that he alone held the answer for humanity, and if only his instructions were followed, there would be enduring peace and prosperity. In 1960, my mother, my family, and the entire concept of an atheist, Marxist utopia, was a joke to an American society that lived in real time and watched the horror of communism in Eastern Europe. Only the elitists, some of whom sat on the Supreme Court, shared her worldview. However, in 2011, America lives in the fantasy land of the internet where perfect societies are created in virtual mode in only minutes. The cries for the masses to be supplied with their needs virtually out of thin air in a perfect world arranged by the government are no longer made just by dreamers like Madeleine Mary O'Hare, that was his mother, and a handful of 60s radicals like Timothy Leary, but by presidential candidates as well. The promises two cars that don't need gasoline in every garage along with endless sources of power without the need for oil, gas, coal, or nuclear energy. No one will ever go hungry again, and all will have free education, free medical care, and subsidized housing. The rich will be gone, and only the elite who guide the society will need chauffeured cars and private jets, which is what we see in communist countries, socialist countries. These were just pipe dreams of my mother and a few others in the 1960s, but now they are shared by an ever-expanding percentage of a population with hands perpetually outstretched toward government. Now that's a man who was raised by the woman who was pretty much the one who got prayer and Bible reading out of school. And his book is My Life Without God. By the way, he's now a Baptist minister. Life has a lot of ironies. <laughs> Life has a lot of ironies. 
Well, you read his book. I've not read the whole thing, but you read his book, you see how he started to draw conclusions, just like David Horowitz did, who left the views of his radical family that he was involved in. They were communists, but they used the word progressive. It's a progressive this or progressive that. He says that they were just communists, and he woke up and became a conservative. Now, I want to finish with this. This was all introduction to show you the various things that we're dealing with now, and of course, there's much, much more. But many of you here, if you weren't old enough or you weren't born again at the time, to have actually watched Jim Baker and his show PTL and other things that developed from that point, you wouldn't know he was perhaps the front runner of what's now called the prosperity message. Not only that, but he didn't shy away from it when people pointed out and say, hey, you're preaching prosperity and worldly wealth and all this. And he would say, yeah, I am. He didn't deny it. He didn't try to hide it. Jim Baker, for those of you who actually watched him as I did, I never cared for him, but I watched him, will remember that then he got himself into trouble. And there was all this scheme of, you know, taking people's money and whatever. And finally, a sentence was laid on him, which was a bit excessive, I think, anyway, to spend 45 years in a federal prison. 45 years. And it was in prison that a minister, well, a minister in name, realized he was wrong. Not wrong because he was in jail, but being in jail, I'm going to read it to you in just a second, gave him the opportunity to actually read the Bible. Now listen, what you're going to hear here is at a point that I've made many times. You assume when you go to a church that the preacher, the pastor, is an expert in the Bible. And I'm telling you that's not always the case. Uh, that is not always the case, and Jim Baker is going to say that here. He wrote a book called I Was Wrong, and this is what he wrote. About the time of my parole hearing, I completed my study of all the words of Jesus in the New Testament. To my surprise, after months of studying Jesus, I concluded he did not have one good thing to say about money. Most of Jesus' statements about riches, wealth, and material gain were in a negative context. I was amazed at this new, quote, new revelation. But beyond that, I was deeply concerned. As the true impact of Jesus' words regarding money impacted my heart and mind, I became physically nauseated. I was wrong. I was wrong. Wrong in my lifestyle, certainly. But even more fundamentally, wrong in my understanding of the Bible's true message. Now, I stopped here to tell you that this is a preacher. We're supposed to know these things. Even if you didn't, that's why you come here. Or you watch on the television or listen on the radio. Because the presumption is, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. Do not presume that no matter where you go. Don't matter how articulate the preacher is, don't matter how cute, funny, humorous, entertaining, whatever it may be, you have to really pray, and a lot. And if you're going to go to a new church, and some do, I always recommend, make sure you get to meet the pastor, and, you know, just interview him. Don't be too forward, but just find out. What does the church believe? Because that man is going to influence your thinking. I say man, I mean, could be man or woman. Um, is going to influence your thinking more than anybody else in your life. Jim Baker was very influential, and that's why he got nauseated. Let me read it again. I was wrong in my lifestyle, certainly, but even more fundamentally wrong in my understanding of the Bible's true message. Not only was I wrong, but I was teaching the opposite of what Jesus had said. That is what broke my heart. When I came to the awareness that I had actually been contradicting Jesus, I was horrified. He went on to say he was also very concerned about all the people who had accepted his teaching. Of course, that hasn't stopped things. Again, if you weren't around in the 80s when Jim Baker was on, he was the man. He was the guy. If that's the type of teaching you wanted to hear, he was your guy. But that didn't stop. It just spread from there. 
I'll just make mention of the fact that that book was written in 1996. In 1998, he wrote another book called Prosperity and the Coming Apocalypse. And the point is this, the fundamental problem that we have today, as I've been saying to you for years, the fundamental problem that we have in America is inside the church. We say, put prayer back in school. Put it back in the public school. We want it back in the school. And we'll march and we'll, I mean, I don't, but we'll march and we'll demonstrate. I say, let's put prayer back in the church. Amen. Call for prayer has gone out from this pulpit for 35 years. And I can tell you this by experience, it's true in every church just about. And it's very rare that you find an exception to what I'm about to say. During one given week or month, the least attended is the prayer meeting. Think about this. If people who profess Christ really believed that when they call out to God, he will answer, he will come through, prayer meetings would be the greatest attended meeting of the week, month, or year, second only to the Bible being opened and taught. But it's not. And we can use the prayer meeting as a type of plumb line of the spiritual health of a church, corporate body, and the daily prayer life, for lack of it, and the part of the professing Christian, what is it showing? There's no real, real belief that when I call out to God, he will hear. It's like I told you a few weeks ago, or maybe it was last week. It's like rolling dice, a type of hope that's based on what I'll loosely call luck. Let's just try a prayer. And God says, call unto me, and I will show you great and mighty things which thou knowest not of. We also need the Bible back in the church. You say, what are you talking about? Bible teaching churches teaches the Bible. I just pointed out to you that they don't. And Jim Baker, who was there, the front runner of this movement, probably the premier guy, is saying, I was wrong. I was teaching wrong. Well, you know what? Let me say this to you. All of my ministry, I've always said to the people that I spoke to and pastored, if I teach anything, read it. Read it for yourself. The tools that I use are available to you. I'm not pulling this out of thin air. I do have dreams, you know, that I believe are prophetic. Not everyone is prophetic. But I don't lean on them, and I don't bring them to you very much. It's always the book. It's what's written in the book. And we need God to move upon the hearts of, first of all, his people. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, we're looking out the window, we're looking for legislation, and I believe, and I do, that's going to be a real mistake when the real lack of God is in the church. Not just using his name or singing it in a song or even attending the prayer meeting. But what does the book say? What does the book actually say? And are we going to line ourselves up with what the book says? We need to put God back in the church. And in a government like we have, a representative republic, it would stand to reason that if the church, local churches have revival, or if we have mass revival, or we have reformation, as we had in the 18th century and the 19th century, some people say there was others saying this is 6th or 7th, but I don't quite see it. Anyway, it's usually 1st and 2nd awakening. And a great awakening has got to start with a group of people that takes prayer seriously, that takes God seriously, to see God move. Because evil can only be removed by God. No matter how much we try, they're only going to have a measure of success, if any at all, because what exists in the world is called evil. Until we recognize that evil exists, we will not be able to find the right solutions. Is number one, to recognize that evil exists. That there is no other real explanation for why things happen the way they happen, except for evil, which is related to sin. Sin brings evil. Evil comes out of sin. And then to respond by knowing that it's God that we need. 
for Americans is simply to make the motto a reality in God, the one true God. The God of the Bible is the one that we trust. But as I said, that's just a trim slogan at the moment. The reality of evil, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There it is, the second chapter of Genesis. Chapter 1 is all about creation. And almost immediately, man challenges God and God's authority and God's word and what God has said. In verse 17, same chapter 2. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in that day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's what evil brings. Death. Physical death. Psychological death. I believe intellectual death as well. It doesn't mean you can't do math. It just means your thinking is twisted. It's not logical. It's not reasonable. And then we know from the, reading the Bible, it brings what the Bible calls a second death. A judgment by God where there is no escape and no hope after that. Genesis 3, verse 5, Satan comes along and says, Well, to Adam and Eve, For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In that part, he didn't lie. You'll know good and evil. Genesis 3, 22, and The Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. We see now evil existed before the creation of man. Lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And man was expelled from the garden. And ever since, we have had a problem with evil. But I'm saying in a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way in my title, none dare call it evil. And I'm not going to look at the moment into the nation and the lawmakers and those in authority over us. I'm looking to the church. It's up to the church to start telling people. You must be born again. And that when you say you're born again, your lifestyle adds up. It follows what the book says. Otherwise, it's a deception. As Saz said about psychiatry and mental illness, that it's just naive to believe that saying a little prayer is actually a change of life. <clears throat> yes, it comes through prayer. It's inviting Christ in. But then not only do you know it, but others begin to see this is a change in your lifestyle. This is a change in the way you speak. This is a change in the way you behave. Others notice. Because that's what Jesus said. They will see your good works and they'll glorify your Father which is in heaven. It doesn't always work out that way, but that's, it was a certain intent that Jesus had at that moment. We, we need God in church. When the church becomes like the world, God, in a manner of speaking, just disappears. Everything is shallow. It's empty. And you know what? I'll say all of us here, we're all intuitive enough to know it when it's just a shallow display or it's the real deal. And I hope today that you desire to be the real deal. But please understand that when you sign up to be the real deal, there's a real enemy. I am amazed. I shouldn't be after so many years of experience. But I am amazed. I don't think Satan actually ever sleeps. He seems like he's always on the job. And in the times in which we live, you can sense the evil coming up against our minds, the thoughts that go through our minds and all this, and it's still a choice. What you think about, what you entertain, what you act on is a choice. Anyway, I don't think Satan ever sleeps. He seems like he's ubiquitous, but he's not. Only God is everywhere present, omnipresent. But Satan must be really getting prepared for something because the judgment of Satan himself is coming. The judgment of Satan himself is coming. I reviewed with you, so I'll just tell you briefly, 
Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. As it was in the days of Lot, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And have shared with you in many occasions, in my view, and I think many, many would agree, we're there. We have arrived. I don't know how much clearer can it be, but again, can you find the elephant in the picture? Many cannot. They watch these things. It's kind of a ho-hum. Now, let me talk about professing Christians with Bibles. It's the same thing. Can you see what's going on? It's right in front of you on the television set. I won't go through the details of conversations I've had in private with people, many of whom I don't know. They just start talking. They tell me what's going on in their life. And I'm really nonplussed. I'm surprised. I shouldn't be, but I am. Of how many people are going through unbelievable circumstances that wouldn't have been the case only 10 years ago. Because they confide in me. They just speak to me. Can you find the elephant in the picture? Can you see it? Well, how do we see it? How do we know we're in the days of Noah? We have to read the book. We have to be able to recognize evil. And this is how we do it. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Paul talking to Timothy said, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise to salvation. We sometimes skip over right to salvation. But it says wise to salvation. Through faith which is in Christ Jesus, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now this one couple of scriptures there in 2 Timothy 3 to represent many that are in the Bible to say this. The only possible way that we can recognize evil beyond something that's so horrific that anybody would call it evil is to know what this book says. Is to have the light shine. I mean, we go into a dark room, even though it's in our own home, and you throw on the light so you can see where you're going. Things could be on the floor, as they are frequently in my home with children and grandchildren and my dog, and who knows? Sometimes he's in the way. I don't see him. You put the light on so you can see. Preachers all over America need to be opening the Bible and letting the Bible shine. Without fear of who's not going to like it, who's going to leave the church, and who is offended. I'm not saying preachers should be offensive, but the Bible does offend. It offends a lot of people. And then they try to retaliate. Some do it with religious compensation, meaning that they pretend that they themselves are religious or readers of the word or whatever they call themselves and whatever their pretense is. But there's an intuitive sense in the individual when you know this is the real deal. God is here. And if you know the book, you know when he's not. You know when it's shallow, when the music is shallow, when the preaching is shallow. We must know the book. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, all of it. And as we read it and study it, and we have a heart to obey it, then all of a sudden, this same picture you've been trying to find the elephant in, the painter who put it in there so cleverly, upside down in the tree, up in the left-hand corner, it's real obvious. You'll be able to see what's going on. We've had this conversation, a few of us here. How can you read the Bible so much and not see what's going on? I'll tell you what the answer is. It's a lack of obedience to what's being read. Let me say this once again. You want to legislate prayer to go back in the schools? Let me ask you this question. For what reason? There's no prayer in the church. That is the height of hypocrisy. The height of hypocrisy. We want prayer back in the school. I say let's start in the church. Let's have prayer in the church. And I finished the thought I didn't finish earlier. Then in a representative government like we have, if the people from the church have a revival and you have people truly born again and living right and all this, and they're voting, 
and it changes the scene. What we want to do is go from the top down. Vote them in. We want this guy so we can skip the prayer meeting. Prayer's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time for me to prepare these messages. I don't get up and just take this lightly. Most of my day on a Saturday, while people are doing other things, of course it is my calling, is spent just contemplating and meditating. And I never, even though I use notes for quotations, like I gave you extensive quotations, mainly for that, I always go into the pulpit open to what God wants to express through me. And I'm saying to you that we think we're going to legislate righteousness. I'm saying righteousness has got to start in the church. It's got to start with the preacher. It's got to start with the preacher who is no respecter of persons say wrong is wrong and right is right. If we have revival in the church, we have a shot at having righteousness in the nation. But if we don't have revival in the church, if those who, or would I should say, follow the example of Jim Baker and write their own story and say, I was wrong. My preaching and teaching was wrong. I not only was in error, I led you into error. Then America has a chance and the other nations as well. But it has to begin here. The recognition of evil, knowing that what is wrong is wrong, as William Penn said it, even though everyone is for it. And right is right, even though everyone is against it. It's always going to be right or wrong. It doesn't matter what people say. It's still right or wrong. Let me bring you now to this about turning from evil. How do you turn from evil? What do you do? Well, you said, well, we just told us, Pastor, we return to the prayer meeting. But it's not really that simple because the book tells us we don't even have to pray as we should. Sometimes even our prayers are misguided unless we're guided by the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 16:6, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. And by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. It must start with the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? It is the knowledge of what God can do and will do. Mount Ebal, the curse. Mount Gerizim, the blessing. In the law, do this and you have the blessing. Do this, you have the curse. That's the fear of the Lord, knowing it's either for good, for better, or for worse. You say, we're not under the law. We are under the law to Christ. And nothing has changed as far as the moral law is concerned, just the ceremonial law. In any case, the fear of the Lord is knowing what can happen for the worse if God's laws are not obeyed. Then it's the other. It's balanced. Then the fear of the Lord is also knowing the blessing and rewards that come from pursuing God with the whole heart, with everything that you have. That's the fear of the Lord. And that's what we need. And that's how you turn from evil. You don't have to understand why it's wrong. All you have to do is believe God when he says it's wrong. And don't do it. And as I tell you so much, we also need to know when God says, do this. Because not doing it is still sin and it's still evil. You see, we're not used to this as Americans. Being told that the evil that we have is lying within us as well. We say, well, pastor, I don't do this, that, and the other thing. But that's what the rich young ruler said. I don't do this, I don't do that. I tithe, uh, all this, what, what do I lack? And Jesus said, now do this. Sell everything that you have. He didn't say that to all of us, but to him. Sell everything that you have, distribute it to those who are truly poor, and follow me. And at this, it says he went away sad. He couldn't do that. He couldn't do what God said to do. And you need both. And the fear of the Lord is how we depart from evil. In the book of Job, chapter 28 and verse 28, and unto man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Psalm 34, 14, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Proverbs 3, verse 7, 
Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Let me say something about Proverbs 3, 7. I have been told, personally told, some are atheists, not all were atheists, but pretty much practically acting like atheists. I have been told, personally told, science is our God. I mean, those were the words. Put away your preaching and teaching, and they call me some uncomplimentary names. You get used to that in ministry. And they say, science is our God. I told you the story of a group of atheists. There was a few of them. And all converged on me at once when I was on social media years ago and made that statement. Basically, what a moron I am and other uncomplimentary things about my intelligence. <laughs> Science is our God. And all I did, I never answered. I just showed a picture of the atomic bomb. They went livid. That was like, if you've ever seen Laurel Hardy in March of the Wooden Soldiers, when the bogeymen get shot with the darts, screaming and yelling, they went nuts. They went absolutely nuts. I didn't even say a word. I just showed them, and they really got the picture. That's what science did. Albert Einstein was one of the main architects, and my math professor, I told you that, was in the Manhattan Project. Did they mean it for good? Well, I, I guess, yeah, for our good, for America's good, and also to protect, you know, family around the world. But is that how it's been used? Now we live under the sword of Damocles, wondering if someone's going to push that button. In fact, we've lived with it so long, we don't even think about someone could push the button. And how many countries have nuclear capacity? I told you Wednesday, while we're sitting here and looking at all these things that are occupying our time and trying our patience and all of this, our president's in Taiwan. Our president makes a statement that if the Chinese attack Taiwan, we will help Taiwan and defend them. What is that saying? Google figure it out. And so Russia and China, who we believe to be in Bible prophecy, of flying a joint military operation over Taiwan, both having nuclear capabilities. That's sending a message. Do you see the elephant in the picture? It's more than just one incident and two incidents. It's, it's a lot of things going on. And if you have the Bible, and you know the Bible, and you're walking in the way, you see it clearly the way I saw the couple holding hands. It was the only thing I saw in the picture. I never got to where the baby was. I still don't know. I may have an overdeveloped right brain, I don't know, but this much I know, I know who God is, Amen. and I know what he has said in his word, and I know we are living right now in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, and Jesus said, save yourself from this perverse generation. Save yourself. You can't save everybody. Save yourself. Proverbs 13, 19. Listen to this. The desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. Those who are fools inside the church, outside the church, doesn't matter. When you talk like this, they're done. Some may politely sit through a message and say, I'm never coming back here again. Well, I can't control that when we don't hold hostages. But only the foolish can't see the elephant in the picture. Only someone who's truly foolish cannot see what the painters have painted. And they're painting it right in front of our face. But when you have the book and it's shining in effulgent light, you see it as plain as day. I'll conclude with this. I just told you that I have dreams. I've had them since I was a little kid. I don't always come to you and say, I had a dream, I had a dream, I had a dream. Personally, I'm tired of hearing all that. I've been in Pentecostal church a long, long time now, and so many foolish things, some are hurtful, some are just demonic. Without any discernment, without any judging from the pulpit, God told me this, God told me that. But I will tell you about this, and I've always believed it to be prophetic. I'm going back 40 years ago when I saw in a, in a dream the destruction of the city where I was born. And as I was seeing this, the buildings looked like what Berlin would look like during the Second World War or other places, just devastated. 
I heard a voice in, I'm sleeping, it's you know, the middle of the night. I have shaken the heavens, the voice said. I have shaken the earth also, and I will do it again. That was it. And I woke up myself a little shook from the dream was disturbing, and what I heard in the dream, a voice speaking. And then we read here in Hebrews 12, 25, these words. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not, speaking of Moses, who refused him that speak on earth, how much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven? That's Jesus, whose voice then shook the earth. So we're Mount Sinai. Remember Sinai? There's a shaking. There's thunder. There's lightning. It sounds like blasting trumpets. The people are so frightened. They say to Moses, you speak to us, but don't let God speak to us. Whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And it ends with this, Hebrews 12, 28, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That's not only old school preaching, that's the Bible. And everything that we've seen from men like Jim Baker, who evidently turned around, and others, is not only cannon fodder, but it's not building the church in the way God has designed it to go, and that's what we need. God bless America. We sang it earlier. We need God to save America. We need a movement of God and we need it in the church. We need it in this church. Amen. We need for people to stop thinking that there's a way that you can live the crucified life comfortably. There's no way to live the crucified life comfortably. It's a life of self-denial. Instead of denying Christ, you deny yourself to follow Christ. Robert E. Lee, the great general of the South, was once asked by a mom who had a young son before the general and asked him, what should I teach my son? His answer was this. Teach him to deny himself. I've always admired Robert E. Lee. Some have different opinions about him, but that's their opinion. Let's go before God today. And as I said to you, not only for me as a preacher, but for yourself, don't go out to purposely be offensive because you're in a bad mood and you have a temperament and a temper. And so you use scripture to justify your temper. That book wasn't made for that either. But I am going to say that we need to speak the truth in love, which will offend people. And we can't avoid it. We're going to speak the truth. But let's make this decision right here, this local fellowship, right here. Not the one behind me, that one over there, the one over the street, right here. Are we going to put a high premium on the Bible and prayer, the Bible and prayer? Do we really believe that when we call out to God, he's going to hear us? And then more than just, you know, God heal me and help me. There's a larger picture here. We've got to pray. And we have to pray in faith, as I came to you last week with that, without wavering, that God will hear us and defer to his judgment. I pray it's not too late. I mean, I hope it's not too late for us now to say, God, you know, because there were many, many nations, many, many times, many, many individuals where God said there's no more. God told Jeremiah, God told Moses, don't pray to me about this anymore. My mind's made up. I pray that we understand what the book is saying and we see the elephant in the picture. It's right in front of your nose. And the reason that we have so much evil is because it was by default. The church never stood up. I don't mean in politics. Never stood up to the book. Didn't follow through. God help us. 
to be able to rise to the occasion and do what needs to be done. In your prayers, I know that you pray for leaders over us, representatives, people we elected, at least the population elected, president, vice president, senators, congressmen, women, Supreme Court justices, and on and on and on. But how many of you actually remember to pray for preachers? They hold the book of life. Everything we see, even the most important things in country after country, is temporal, it's temporary. This book is not. And what it shares is not. It's not temporary, it's eternal. So let's go before God. And once again, like we do for communion each week, don't examine me, examine yourself. Where are you in this picture? So Father, we come before you today on this Memorial Day weekend. We show appreciation for those who went off and never came back, that America could be free. But we also understand from your book that real freedom comes from Jesus Christ, and without him we can do nothing. That's what he told us. Pour out your spirit that we may understand and see, as I've been using this illustration, the elephant in the picture. See the couple holding hands, where it becomes obvious what the agenda actually is. The picture painters, God, help us to recognize them in the media and in the halls of legislation and authority. But let us also see the picture of the church. As it took Jim Baker five years in a federal prison to finally understand his whole entire lifestyle and message was wrong. That's scary to think a preacher would have to go to prison to understand the Bible. In any case, God, bring our hearts into a place where we understand and we recognize the truth. Help us to be able to see clearly as we speak humbly and as we speak the truth in love. We must be realists to understand not only is not everyone going to agree, but we will become the subject of their verbal diatribes and retribution. So be it. Help us, God. Pour out your spirit. Help us not to keep looking to the flesh. You're speaking to the church. If my people, which are called by my name, help us today, God, to humble ourselves. We turn our hearts to you today, Father, and we ask you, God, to help us to walk with you. Help us, Father God, to walk with you. Help us to be faithful right to the end. Then, God, we do pray for our country. It is so going off the rails. We pray for those in leadership over us, from the president, Congress, Senate, local governments, state governments, community governments. For God, this is how you direct the affairs of men, through government. Help us, Father, to be worthy of good government. God, we ask you to bless America. Spare your judgment. Help us, God. Help us to see again as we pray and others are praying. A revival, perhaps to outdo the 18th and 19th century revivals of Wesley and Whitfield and Edwards and Finney. Because there's more souls now here on the planet and in our country. Pour out your spirit, God. We need you. Every hour we need you. Don't pass us by. We come to you. Lord, today we give you all the praise. Today we give you all the glory. Today we give you all the honor. Help us this day and the rest of this week to live for you and to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, all of the strength, and then equally to love one another. We give you all the praise, give you all the glory, give you all the honor today in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen with me? Amen. Amen.